gods. And we pray that we might meet with you and that we might meet with Jesus. Amen. Well, in these uh, Sundays after Easter, we are looking at some of the ways that the early Christians, the first Christians, preached the message of the resurrection. And Peter and John here preach a very simple message. What their message is, is that 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead. That is remarkable, but in itself, it is not life-changing. It's an interesting fact, something to talk over about over a coffee or over a pint. And you can imagine the conversation, two people meeting. Somebody says, you, you know that Jesus? Did you, yeah, the one who was crucified? Yes. Uh, he came back from the dead. No, that doesn't happen. I don't believe you. Well, it's absolutely true, because I met him. Gave me quite a turn. Hmm. What's he doing these days? I'm not sure. He comes and goes. He turns up here and there. Amazing. I wonder if I'll see him. Do you, do you think Arsenal stand any chance of catching Chelsea? <laughs> it's the sort of thing, I could see somebody definitely shaking their heads there, one or two. Ray and Jane, where are Ray and Jane? Would Ray and Jane like to stand up? I'm saying this because I know Ray is a Chelsea fan, but more to the point, Ray and Jane are getting married tomorrow. So can we give them a round of applause and we pray? <laughs> at, at one o'clock here in St Mary's, and, and anybody's welcome to come along to the service. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> um, you see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that's great for Jesus, but it doesn't really need to affect you. But Peter and John do not simply say that 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead. They make, if it is possible, a bigger claim. They are proclaiming that in Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, they are saying that Jesus did not only rise from the dead, but that he is the resurrection. He is ultimate life. And we share in that resurrection life when we come to him, put our trust in him, and call on him. In other words, resurrection life is Jesus-shaped. When we put our hand into his hand and allow him to lead us, we enter into this new life. He is the logic and wisdom of this new life. He is the ruler of this new life. He is the role model for this new life. He is our guide and companion in this new life. But more than that, he's not only the companion beside us, he is the one who comes into our lives and gives us the heart, the desire and the inner strength so that we want, so that we long and are able to begin to live this new resurrection life. 
The resurrection life of Jesus, the resurrection life is a Jesus-shaped seed that is planted deep inside a person when we turn to Jesus. As we feed it and water it by by reading God's word, by, by meeting with his people, that seed grows and it starts to shape us, not physically, but spiritually, at the very centre of our being. As Jesus knows God as his Father, so we begin to know God as our Father. As Jesus sees people and situations and things with the eyes of God his Father, so we begin to see things with the eyes of God his Father. As Jesus is controlled by love for his Father, by joy and by peace, so we begin to be controlled by delight in his Father, by joy and by peace. And because Jesus did not simply rise from the dead, but because he is the resurrection from the dead, because resurrection life is Jesus-shaped, There are three implications that come out in this passage. Firstly, Jesus is the power of the resurrection life. We've already seen that. Because of the resurrection life or power of Jesus, people are healed. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, 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 this story, um, Dorothy spoke about this story last week, but it's based on the fact that Peter and John have just healed a man who has been lame since birth, and he was 40 years old. And he's healed, if you notice from our reading, Peter says, in the name of Jesus. What happens here is that the resurrection life, when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, when there will be no one who is lame or blind or deaf, that resurrection life breaks into the here and now. And this is a glimpse This healing of this lame man, it's a glimpse, it's a taster of that future life. On Friday, we had a service to give thanks for the birth of little Oliver. Oliver is five months old, but in those five months, he suffered from meningitis, and sadly, as a consequence, he is potentially brain damaged. His mum and dad have gone through hell. And we prayed on Friday at the Thanksgiving service that he might be healed in the name of Jesus. Because there are times when that healing power of God breaks in. But even if he is not healed here, The resurrection power of Jesus means that one day Oliver will be free to be the person who God made him to be. We live in hope. And the resurrection power of Jesus means that people are changed. Again, Dorothy spoke about that last week, of the transformation in Peter. 
He was set free from fear. Only a few weeks earlier, when someone asked him if he knew Jesus, he said, "Uh, no way. Now he stands in front of the same group of people who sentenced Jesus to death, and he openly speaks of Jesus. And the most amazing thing about the resurrection power of Jesus is that when we preach in the name of Jesus, people believe and are converted. People who are spiritually dead become alive. It happens here in verse 4. We're told the number of believers numbered 5,000. Jesus is still the resurrection from the dead. And when we faithfully speak in the name of Jesus, things will happen. People will be converted. Those 5,000 who came to believe didn't see the risen Jesus. This is after the ascension. Jesus has gone to heaven. They only had Peter's word to go for it that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They had Peter standing in front of them saying, Jesus is raised and we know it because we saw him. Do you know we are no different? We simply have Peter and John and the other disciples' words. Jesus is raised and we have their words. Why? Because we saw it. And yet when Peter preaches in the name of Jesus, something happens. People realise their deep need for God, for his forgiveness and power. And many come to believe. They put their trust in Jesus and they call on him. Of course, this is God's business and not ours. Many of us long to see God at work more. Many of us long to see more God incidences. Interestingly, over the past few weeks, we've seen, really as a church, three rather dramatic God incidences, um, which are just lovely. Uh, In one case, a lady who could not see had her eyes opened long enough so that she was able to read a particular psalm together with others at that particular time. Don't ask me why it happened. (laughs) Don't ask me what what was going on there. But I do know she could not see. And suddenly, as she was reading this psalm, as, as as a group of people reading this psalm, she suddenly was able to see it absolutely clearly. And at the end, the sight went back to as it had been. We give thanks for things like that. But it gives us a greater longing to see God's resurrection life come in more power. We long to see healings. We long to be changed, to see others changed. We long to see many becoming believers. Only God can do that. Our task is to pray, to trust that there is power in the name of Jesus. And like Peter and John, to speak in the name of Jesus. And then secondly, Jesus is the true cornerstone for our lives. Verse 11, Peter says, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Some Bibles say capstone, others say cornerstone or foundation stone, as Mary 
Marianne was speaking about. The capstone is the final stone that you put, that's put in when an arch is made that holds everything together. Without it, the whole thing collapses. The cornerstone is the foundation stone. So this is saying that Jesus is the foundation rock on whom we believe, on whom we build. The stone who, hold, who holds it all together. There's a story that Jesus told. There were two builders. Both built their own homes. One of them built on rock and the other built on sand. And you can join in. And the rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand fell. I apologise. <laughs> Why? Why does it fall flat? Jesus teaches those who listen to his words but don't put them into practice. Are like the person who built on the sand. Why? Because he's the only true cornerstone on whom we build our lives. The political rulers of Jesus' day rejected Jesus because they built on sand. They built on the fear of not rocking the boat. They were terrified of what the Romans would do. They built on their preconceived images of what God's kingdom and what God's ruler would look like. They built on a foundation of needing to prove themselves of showing that they were somebody, that they were significant. And Jesus' message, his miracles and his popularity threaten that. Many of us reject Jesus because we build on sand. We build our lives on what others think of us, on trying to prove ourselves, or on living a stable, quiet life. We live lives based on our own unquestioned assumptions, on our safe cliques. We think that this is what will give us fulfilment, significance, and permanence. And when we build our lives on those things, they will, of course, crash. Peter invites us to build our lives on the one who is bigger than death, on the one who knows us and yet still loves us who died for us, who rose from the dead, who has an eternal destiny for us. That's the only way we can survive the earthquakes which threaten to shake and break our lives into a million pieces. Listen to him, obey him, trust him, even when, particularly when, he asks you to do things that you don't agree with or things that you find particularly difficult. That is when obedience is costly, and that is when we grow in love and trust. That is when we build on the rock. And thirdly, Jesus is the only one who can give salvation. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mortals by which we must be saved. There's a danger sometimes that when we quote this verse, 
We often do it as a spiritual Arnold Schwarzenegger with our theological rocket launcher. And this verse is the missile. We blast it at non-believers, thinking that it will shake them and get them to believe. And what it sounds like is we Christians have got it right, and you've got it all wrong, and you're all condemned, so you better become one of us. And, and what it does is often, like missiles, it destroys any spiritual faith in others, and it makes us look like arrogant, intolerant bigots. Please remember that when Peter states this fact, there is no other name under heaven given to mortals by which we must be saved. He is not in a position of power, but of extreme weakness. He is on trial. He could be imprisoned, he could be beaten, he could even be possibly executed. When we speak to others of Jesus, we need to do that on our knees before them, offering up and offering out life. You see, Peter is saying to them that Jesus, who they, the people who, who is on trial in front of, they last saw dead hanging on a cross. He says, this Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And this Jesus is the one who God will use to bring salvation to everyone who turns to him. Even you, he says, even you who crucified him. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Peter is saying to them this, because resurrection life is Jesus-shaped, if you call on him, you must be saved. This is not a threat. The threat is in the previous verse, that if we don't build our lives on him, our lives will be shaken into pieces. But verse 12 is a gift. It is a promise. Call on the name of Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus when you're out of your depth, when your life has been shaken, when you face the unthinkable. Call on the name of Jesus when you face relentless pressure, when the monsters are about to devour you, when you are crushed, when temptation and sin and fear and death overwhelm you and grip you and control you. Call on the name of Jesus when you stand naked and vulnerable before others, when you've been shamed, when they laugh at you, mock you, spit at you, and then crush you. Call on the name of Jesus when your hopes have been smashed, when your desires have been ripped in pieces, when you are broken and heartbroken. After the service on Friday, the Thanksgiving service, there were a couple here. They were in, she was in floods of tears because of a miscarriage. And her heart was just breaking. But she was here in this place. And she can call on the name of Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus when you're empty and lost 
and desperately alone when you're deep in the pit and you do not know which way to turn. Call on the name of Jesus when you're hurting, in pain, and all you want to do is die. Call on the name of Jesus when you begin to realise what you've done to others, how you've hurt them, or when you look at yourself with all the darkness inside you, when you see how small or petty or trapped you've become, and when you cannot face yourself, let alone others. Call on the name of Jesus today, now, here in church. Call on the name of Jesus in the classroom, in the boardroom, on the shop floor, in the office, in the bedroom. Call on the name of Jesus when you wake up and when you go to sleep. Call on the name of Jesus when you are healthy or when you're sick, when you're happy or when you're sad. Call on the name of Jesus in life at the time of your death, and even in death. Call on him with all your heart, because there is no other name that has been given to you by which you must be saved. He is the life raft that will never fail. He is the friend who will never betray you. He is the, a lover who will never abandon you. He is the brother who will always be there for you. Many of you will have heard of Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad. I had the privilege of being a student at Theological College together with Andrew. In his previous life, before he went to college, he had been an anaesthetist at St. Thomas Hospital. And he used to say how, as he was putting patients under, he would invite them to think of something really lovely, really precious. And he spoke of how one larger, older West Indian lady, as she was lying on the bed, looked up at him and beamed. And she said, I'm thinking of Jesus. someone who I know and who I deeply respect, who has more godliness and theology in his little finger than I have in the whole of my body, said to me, as I grow older, I find that I'm losing many of my old certainties, but I've come to realize that it doesn't matter because what I do know is that it's all about Jesus. Come to Jesus call on Jesus. He rose from the dead. Resurrection life is Jesus-shaped. He is the power of the resurrection life. He is the cornerstone on whom we must build our lives. His is the name by which relationships are restored, by which people meet the healing power of God by which men and women, you and me, are converted and changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
because there is no other name given to men and women by which we must be saved. Let's have a moment of quiet.